Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together. We ask you just to bless this time as we look at your word and help us to see what you would have us to see through it all. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 82. It's only eight verses long, so it probably won't take that long. A Psalm of Asap. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the person, the people of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are but a core course. They have said, we are gods and all of you are the children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit all nations. So here we go. Asaph, the songs of Asaph are all very much pro prophetic songs, and, and he speaks, and we've seen that over, the, the judgment over Jerusalem and the temple falling. And, and you know, for the last couple of ones, we've seen these prophetic psalms that's that almost seem, and, and many liberals will say they were written afterwards and then added in, which we know they weren't, and because of how accurately they portrayed the future. And so here we're going to see, this one's not quite as strong and it's accurate in its pr pr uh, prophetic statements. So in verse 1, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And so this is kind of an interesting, it starts out Elohim, which is a, Elohim is a very interesting word in Hebrew because it is a plural word for a singular God. And this is when Genesis 1-1 said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is Elohim, a plural word for one God. So the Jews, even in, their, in the language of the Hebrews, have this idea of a multiple, somehow a multiple God who is one. And we look at it and we know it's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They did not recognize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's one of those things when you ask an Orthodox Jew, because I have, I go, how can you have a plural word for one God? They go, we don't know. We just accept it. And I, and I didn't push it any further because it wasn't, you know, I've loved the times when I've had the opportunity to talk to some of the Orthodox Jews. And I don't push too far when I'm asking my questions. I just want to know what they know. You know I asked one of them, when, what was the first sacrifice recorded in the scriptures? And they go, well, that's easy. Cain and Abel, I'm going, didn't God create a sacrifice when he created clothing? They go, uh. <laughs> yeah. uh so, you know, it's kind of interesting to talk with them because there's certain things that they're really good, but it's also good because they understand things that we don't understand and they come up with some different answers sometimes. But it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. Okay, basically it means that he is at home. If he's in among strong people, it doesn't bother God at all because he's stronger than they are. Have you ever been in a group where you just feel like you don't belong because everybody else knows more than you do? Whether it's a Christian group or a non-Christian group, uh, you, know, you can feel very intimidated oftentimes, especially young Christians when they go into the college environment and the college environment is very hostile to Christians. Our, our young Christians have not been trained to defend themselves, not been trained on what they believe, and the next thing you know, they're being beat up because they're not able to stand in the congregation of the mighty. They, they get 
totally torn apart. And it's interesting to watch uh, if you saw God's Not Dead or God's Not Dead 2, you see these, this kind of thing that goes on against them where they're just attacked by people who act like they know everything and know more than you, you know, have all the answers to everything that you might be able to say, and they do. My Lutheran youth group leader went to college and came out of atheists. Mm-hmm. What? A lot of young men have done that. A lot of young Christians have gone into college and been come out as an atheist because they just they did not they had never been trained to answer any of these questions. And these professors love to love to attack the faith of these young Christians. And and part of it's the church's fault. We're not teaching them how to answer these questions because we're just teaching them, you know, and you'll hear this and it's one of the statements that I hate. Well, you just have to take this by faith. No, it's there's nothing we have to take just by faith because the Bible is a logical book that has very strong statements of truth in it. And so we want to be very careful. Our answer should never be to somebody, well, you just, that's just something you take by faith. No, we get down and we teach them what it, how to defend it. And it's, it's wonderful because you get to talk to somebody about evolution and creationism. You know, evolution has so many holes in it, and yet most people cannot, you know, young people going into college can't defend evolution and creationism. And it's not that hard. You know, the very fact that we have DNA, which is a huge information system, is a proof that there's a intelligence behind DNA. Because you, if you have something, it, it does not mean anything until there's a meaning behind it. And, and if you remember Ken, Ken Ham, if you've ever watched any of his stuff, he'll write the word T-A-G on the, on the board and he'll ask, what does that mean? Okay, and most English speakers say that it means tag. Okay, a tag in a shirt or, or a tag in, you know, a play, kids playing tag. But if you're a German and you put T-A-G up there, you just wrote day. Mm-hmm. Day. Day. Okay. <coughs> The letters don't mean anything until somebody assigns information to it. Okay, DNA has a library worth of information about how to make us. And unless there's something to say, this is what the information is, then it is, means nothing. And nature will not create information. Okay, you can't randomly create information. Somebody has to analyze it and be able to turn it into information, okay? And the more we're getting to understand about these things, the more we're realizing that evolution can't answer it. When I studied the cell in college, and I took a class on the cell for an entire semester, all we did was talk about cells, it became obvious that a cell could not be created randomly, okay? So what do, what do you need? You, gotta, you need a enzyme that opens up a lock in the cell so the nutrients can get in and out of the cell wall. Which came first, the cell or the, the, the key or the lock? Mm-hmm. Now, without one, the other was worthless. <laughs> and how many starved, cell, st- starved to death because it didn't have both pieces of it? So all of these things are so important and then it, there's no piece of a cell that the cell can do without and survive. And they want to say that this somehow came together randomly all at the same time to create a cell. You see how silly that would be? Yeah. Especially if you know how many pieces there are to the cell 
And when you get really down into the cell, you go, wow, you know, there's, I can't remember, but there's like 30 or 40 pieces to the cell, you know, and all of them had to come together at exactly the same time to have a cell that lives. And so when we get in here, it's important that we teach people. Uh, a cell of what, though? Huh? A cell of what? Any cell, body, a human body, a cat, a, a plant, any cell. They're all complex. There's no simple cell that can be randomly put together. And we see this also in various things like when we look at Jesus' resurrection. How there's just so much proof in, a, in his resurrection recorded in, and recorded in other books to show that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, can we prove it beyond a shadow, you know, be, you know, completely 100%? No, but we can, we can prove it to the court's satisfaction of beyond reasonable doubt, okay? Because we look at what it says. And it's, you know, it's not something we just believe and jump off a cliff and say, well, I'm just gonna believe that he rose from the dead and, and there's no proof. No, there's tons of proof. And it's just a matter of, are we teaching the proofs? Do people know how to defend what they believe? And it's incredible that God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He's not afraid of it, and you know what? He's in us. He will give us the words to say when we will be brave enough to open our mouths. The bigger problem is oftentimes we're not brave enough to open our mouths because we don't want to look like the only one. And when I, when I went back to college, I was in my 40s, so it was hard for them to buffalo me, and they didn't like it because I would stand up. I would stand up and, and, and be ready to debate with them, which gave courage to all the other poor students who were being beat up. It's like, oh, there are answers. I didn't know there were answers. And they would start joining in. And it's critical. We are not doing a service to our young people when we don't teach them that there's answers, mm -hmm. that there are answers, that God is logical, that it is logical to be a Christian and to believe in the word of God. And the more we can do that, the better off we are. And that doesn't mean we're ever going to be, you know, that many people will be experts at apologetics. But they need to know enough to defend and not be blown out of the water. And, and most of us know somebody in our lifetime that's related or you're close to us that has had their faith destroyed by some atheist that has destroyed it usually in college. And so it's important. It's important for us to understand there are answers. When we don't think that there's answers, go find them. They're, it's so easy to find them nowadays, it's not funny. So we want to be able to deal with that. How, she was talking about a theologian school. How can you let an atheist teach in a, in a school that's training young ministers? Unfortunately, in many Christian schools and, and even Bible colleges and even seminaries, there's a underlying principle that they don't believe the word of God. So they will hire anybody who has a degree in that topic and these people sound good I mean it's and it's sad and sometimes they don't dig into what they believe and then by the time they've hired them it's kind of late and but let's go even further the Southern Baptist with its four different seminaries that it has back in the 80s the liberals got hold of our seminaries okay uh, three of the four seminaries the liberals got hold of the Southern Baptist seminaries and was teaching the Bible is not absolute, There's, it's not the word of God, uh, Jesus didn't die and resurrect, he, you know, they taught a lot of things 
Now, the Southern Baptists got hold of their, their three seminaries, but you have a period of time where pastors were being put out into the ranks of churches. This was 30 years ago, 30 to 40 years ago. Most of these guys that were taught in three of those schools are now, if they're still in the ministry, high enough to be senior pastors in their churches. Can you imagine how much damage it can, can or is being done to our churches because of these pastors still hanging around with their liberal teachings? You know, an entire generation of pastors, about a, about a five to 10 year period, that are hit the world. Now, hopefully most of them have been weeded out. But the scary thing is, if they didn't, there's a bunch of very liberal Southern Baptist senior pastors out there. And that's a scary thought. It's a very scary thought. And Satan does this with all these different schools. He gets leaders put into them that don't necessarily believe in the Bible and God. And they're still teaching in quote unquote Bible colleges and seminaries. And all you need to do is get one very influential person in any of these schools and you can, you can blow the faith out of a lot of people even though you've got a lot of them teaching the right thing, one or two in there that are teaching anti-God can make a huge impact on people that aren't walking with the absolute fact that this is a true book. And once you start getting that little chink in there that they don't deal with, once you kind of go, well, you know, hey, you know, if you start reading the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and first, you know, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, and you start matching up the, the timelines of all these kings, then they just don't add up, and they don't go and find out that there's a real solid answer for that, you know, because there's a couple different answers, and I can't remember which is which, but Israel or Judah, you started numbering from one at the very first time that they started, and the other you didn't have a year until you were at the end of your year. That's enough to throw off your schedules a little bit. Then there's the fact that many of these kings, when they would go off to war, would take their sons and say, okay, you are number two king, and called a co-regency. And so you start reading in here, and one place is going when they started to be co-regent, and the other one's talking about when they became king by themselves, when they were the king and not number two king. So there's all kinds of little answers in there but unless you seek the answers, because it is true, you start writing them down, you start going, hold it, now there's, a, you know, there's an overlap here, and what's going on, and the answer's simple, but if you're just looking at it and letting it throw your faith, it doesn't make sense. But the answers have been dug into and, and shown that you know, it's a co-regencies, and, uh, and we still have this problem in this world today. Okay, we have the problem even today in Asia, you were one year old the moment you were born. Right. Okay, in America, we are zero, eight, zero, and we have to go through an entire year before we're considered that we are born, uh, that we have, that we're a year old. No. So you want to be very careful because it's interesting when you look at this, it's, it's a small difference, but yet, you know, very quickly you find out that there's some issues, you know, when you deal, dig into these things. So it is easy to defend. It is easy to defend when we just take the time to find out and look at the answers. And it says that God judges among the gods. 
And you notice this is a small g in your Bibles, chapter 82, Psalm 82. Uh, that, they, that he, God is in charge of every deity that might be out there. He's greater than. He did that, and we see that in the book of Exodus when he takes the children of Israel out of Egypt. You know, I love to say that the ten, ten plagues was a battle of the gods. And he goes, okay, you believe your God in the Nile is powerful? Let me show you how powerful it is as I turn the, blood, the Nile into blood, which kills all the fish which were gods, which kills the different other you know, things that were gods in Nile. Each one of the plagues attacked it at least two or three gods of Egypt. And so it's a big battle of the gods. Mosquitoes and frogs were gods too? They made, they made gods of everything. Now they didn't, I don't remember mosquitoes being one of the plagues, but. Gods and rocks, gods and everything. What was it, please? Lice. Lice. Lice and locusts, yes, God. Any of those things were part of the representation of God, or they attacked a god. You know, in the case of the locusts, I don't believe the locusts themselves were a god, but everything they ate and destroyed mm -hmm. was a god that was supposed to protect that, that area. But that's not pantheism. For the, for the Egyptians, yeah. it was uh, polytheism, not pantheism. Poly, poly. Polytheism. Polytheism is many gods. Pantheism is that everything is God. Right. And that's the Eastern mentality has that idea, that everything is God. And if you come across a Hindu or a, or especially Buddhist and, and uh, people of the Zen philosophies of, of Asia, everything is God, which is why they don't, you know, they, we are God, everything is God, and everything around us is God, so you don't destroy anything, you don't kill anything, because it is, everything is God. And every once in a while you'll run across somebody who's a pantheist who believes that everything around them is God. Now in the Hindu in the Hindu belief everything 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 is is part of the life cycle so you don't kill anything because you might be killing your uncle, your uncle or your or your uh, or your great grandpa. I never heard that either. Because he comes back in, in in their mentality when you come back as something else in the next gen, next life, it's not it's not guaranteed you're coming back as a human. You could come back as a worm or. Or, or a mosquito, or a bird, or a, or an amoeba. Just you can come back as just anything out there that's a living, and you could go up the scale. And I'm not sure what's above human in their mind, minds because I haven't looked it up. But you know, there's you start getting in the spiritual world for them, and you know, your ultimate goal is to you know evolve into the highest place where you're God, and and so. But you see how all of this stuff, God is, says, I'm greater than all the other gods, and I have wisdom and I have understanding. Satan is building up all kinds of gods and all kinds of misunderstandings. If God, and we remember when we did the Truth Project, which is a while ago, we may do that again, but he said that for every truth of God, there's multiple lies from Satan. Okay? God says the only way to, to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And his sacrifice. You know, we know many ways that people pretend to go to God. You know, well, you know, doing good works. You know, doing more good than bad, which is what most people like because that puts it all in the flesh. Or to the other extreme, there is no heaven anyway, so who cares? So Satan throws out all these lies to us and says, "Here, I've got lots of you know, lots of lots of truths for you to, to to try to figure out." 
And God's saying, no, there's only one truth. And we see this over and over in everything that we're out there. You know, when God says something is sin, Satan comes along and says, no, there's no such thing as sin, or, you know, you're sick, or, you know, it's not, you know, it's not sin, sin, you're just sick. And, and how many times do we find ourselves biting into some of his little lies? Okay, and as I said this morning, sometimes you hear people, you know, God says that we're to be married for life. Satan comes along and says, you know, and goes, well, you know, there are exceptions, you know, everybody changes, so, you know, is, is, is divorce uh, wrong? Absolutely. Can you be forgiven of it? Absolutely. You know, I will be careful of saying, is it necessary sometimes? I don't think so, because God doesn't have that statement unless they're committing adultery. And that's the one place where God says you can be divorced, and even then, you don't have to. You know, it's not a mandatory thing, but that is the only way he, he said that you could be divorced, is through adultery. they should get out of that situation. But it's not grounds for divorce in the Bible. So, but again, it's those statements there that kind of make people, okay, God says one thing, Satan says, well, here's your, here's your, really, and, and it's true, there are bad cases. Okay, how did they get abortion, how, how did they get abortion through? They picked some hard cases where somebody, and you used to, well, you know, and it's always the exception in, in case of rape, you know? I understand that that child's going to be hard, but there's somebody who wants that child. Uh, there's somebody out there that wants that child. Why murder the child? Because somebody else did something bad. And I know that's harsh and hard to, hard to take, but it, we have to say God says that murder is wrong, and it's something we have to agree with. And there's always going to be those cases, always going to be those cases where we logically say, well, it makes no sense, it's not good. But you know... Anytime we use our logic to disagree with God, we'll regret it in later on. We always will. But see, that's kind of, that one part is kind of sad because if somebody was really right, they wouldn't want to carry that child. I understand. For nine months. I mean, they torment. I understand. But why does the child get murdered because of somebody else's misbehavior? Then you have to suffer. So, it, I mean, I... You'll suffer if you get an abortion. <laughs> you, you suffer more when you get the abortion, and, and that's something they don't okay. teach you, and they don't tell you about. And I have met so many women who have had an abortion, and usually when the child gets to a certain age and they, and they watch their friends' children at those ages, especially if it would have been the same age as their child, it really hits them emotionally. Whether they wanted the child or didn't want the child, it's like, whoa. <laughs> I, I had somebody that should have been learning to ride a bike or first day of school or, or if they have another child that they wanted, each one of those mild markers make them sad because it's another child that they had gotten that should have done that already. So, you know, we look at it and say the easy out is to get rid of this child. But again, down the road, when we violate God's truth, down the road, we suffer for our decision to go against his, his word. And... Yes, it's hard for us to look at it and say, well, this is, this is what you, you know, here's all the problems I avoided there, but the long-term problems are worse. And every one of us have been there doing something where we disobeyed God in a sin and ended up doing something that we regret. And it's hard, but again, do we choose to follow God or do we try to follow Satan's cleverly, cleverly crafted 
reasons for not doing so, and then when we follow his reasons for not doing so, we pay for it. You know, well, God, you know, you say you're not supposed to get drunk, but hey, you know, it's 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 my 21st birthday, and I and I deserve to to go out and party, and then you end up doing something that night that hurts you for the rest of your life. Uh, and it doesn't always happen, but oftentimes you end up doing, you disobey God and something happens that affects you much longer. And it can be just about any sin. Any sinful activity can do this to you. And, you know, we want to be careful. You know, hanging out with your buddies, you know, and all of a sudden they decide to, to rob a store and you're part of it. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're sitting in jail or prison if something really bad happened in it. You know, because you violated God's standards, you know, for a quick little thrill. And maybe not even for the thrill. It's just, you know, a bunch of people just decided to go out and do something and you got wrapped up in it. And you ended up, you know, number one, you had bad companions. Number two, you sinned. <laughs> you know, but it's that, trans, that list of ideas that took you away from what God said. This is my rules. And... You know, and I believe, believe me, I understand when somebody comes and says that I'm raped, I, you know, I've been raped, I want to get rid of this child, you know, I feel for that person. I really do feel for that person. But I also feel for that poor child that's going to <laughs> face it. And I would feel for them if they got the, the, the abortion, the psychological problems down the road are very real. I've had to help people through that and usually I've helped them get to somebody else to help because I'm not you know, the one to counsel through that because I know it's a serious problem. So we want to be careful. God has rules. And we need to follow his rules and his truths. And if we don't follow his truth, we get caught up. You know, I've heard Christians that will tell me, well, you know, this creation thing isn't really that big a deal. I'm going, no, 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 you don't understand. It is everything. It's the foundation of everything we believe. If creation isn't true, then none of the Bible is true. And we can't give an inch on God's truth. When God says something, we need to hold his truth. And the sad thing is in the mid-1800s, when, when evolution started being taught, the Christian church was like, well, we don't know how to fight this science stuff, so we're going to have to agree that science is right and the Bible's wrong. They messed up at the very first statement. They needed to be able to say, well, well, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, uh, six days and rested on the seventh. Uh, we need to hold on to that. We don't know how it fits in with these scientific quote-unquote truths, but they didn't have enough faith in the Bible at that time to stand on the Bible as a whole. You know, there were churches, obviously, that stood on the Bible, but as a whole, they, they capitulated to, the, to science and it caused a huge schism within the church because all of a sudden we're saying the Bible's not true. As soon as you give any place where you say that God's not true on what he says, you're in trouble. And this is where I love Dr. McGee's statement where, where Dr. McGee on the radio would say, you know, wherever McGee and the word of God disagree, the word is right and I've got to figure out why I don't understand it. And that's where we have to be. Anytime something comes along and says, this is different, and, we, and they come up with some good arguments, we go, okay, God, I don't know how to answer this person, but you are correct in what you say. Help me learn how to answer this. Because, and I've said this over and over, if this book isn't 100% true, 
we might as well throw it away because we have no hope. If this book is not true, then I, don't, I can't hope that God is going to be, be true when it comes to, to the afterlife. You know, I'm betting everything I have that this book is true and I've never found an error and it's going to be true in the afterlife when I stand before him and he says, Jesus' blood covers my sins and welcomes me into heaven. And do you understand if there's anything wrong with this book, we don't have the confidence to be able to say my eternity is fixed. Because if anything is wrong in this word, none of it is, is worthy of being, under, being accepted. And we might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and don't know what's going to happen into the future. And this is why it's, we've got to get into it and say it is true. Are there hard sayings in the book? Yes. Are there hard things to understand in the book? Yes. You know, as I tell people, you know, I understand that the Bible talks about the Trinity. And the times I talk about, teach about the Trinity, I'm, my, my opening statement is, I'm going to tell you everything the Bible has to say about the Trinity, and you're not going to understand the Trinity any more when we're done than when you started. Because the Trinity is something we cannot conceive of in our mind. How can you have three distinct individuals who can act individually, and yet they are one and only one? You know, and we'll use our examples like you know, water, it can be ice and, and liquid and salt you know, or, or steam. The only problem is it can't be all three at one time. Right. At least the same, the same bit of water. Yes, I can have steam over here and ice over here and running water over here, you know, but in that case I have three separate individuals. I don't have one. But I can't take one, you know, one cup of water and have it be without dividing it into smaller portions steam, liquid, and ice at the same time. Okay, so any, de any description we use of the Trinity doesn't hold up in the long run. We'll talk about an egg. An egg is a great example of the Trinity in Furlots. It's got a shell, yolk, and white. But once you break it open, it's not going back together again. Okay, because it is no longer <laughs> that Trinity. And so we get all these examples, and all the examples fail to hold up in the long run because the Trinity is something that we cannot comprehend in reality. Yes, once it's explained, okay, I've got this idea that there's a Trinity, but I can't, I can't link it to anything in the physical world to say this is the Trinity. So again, it's one of those things, that's probably one of the few things we have to take by faith. Uh, it's a mystery that we can't understand, but if we got into the 10th or 20th dimension, maybe we'd understand it, no problem, but we don't we don't have a way in our world, in our time frame, in our, in our dimensional framework to understand how you can have three separate individuals that are totally separate and yet they are one. We just can't comprehend it. The Bible teaches it, it gives us examples, but we don't understand it. So we, in some cases we do have to say this is by faith. All I know is the Bible teaches it. I know the Bible teaches us that we have free will and it also teaches that God is sovereign and elects and has an election and has a, and, uh, and all of that. And we go, how do we bring those together? You know what? I don't know. I've been, I've been struggling with it for 40 years and I'm going, God, you know how it's true. You know, you know how it's true and you'll know how to make it work. Because how can I have a free will and God be totally sovereign? It just doesn't work. A lot of people will say, well, God just knows our decisions. Well, that's probably true. He does know our decision. He knows the beginning from the end. But that doesn't mean that he made his plan according to our decisions. 
You know, and all you gotta do is look at somebody like Paul, knocked off his horse with a bright light. Could Paul have said no when God said, serve me? Well, he could have. He had a free will. He could have said, no, I'm not gonna serve you. Nobody in their right mind, after they were knocked off their horse with a bright shining light, would have said, uh, no, I'm not gonna serve this guy that just has uh, you know, done all this to me. So you know, did Paul have a free will or did God, was God sovereign over that? I believe he was sovereign over that. You know, yes, Paul could have said no. Nobody in their right mind would have said no. So again, God is ultimately above everything. Everything is geared toward him. Verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the people of the wicked, Selah? And this is talking about the people. They weren't judging people correctly, and they were accepting the wicked. Does that sound a little familiar with our world today, yeah. accepting the wicked? You know, hey, they're okay. You know, there's, no, there's this, that, or the other thing. You know, they're, they're just doing what they think is right. It's, easy. uh, it's the easier way to live. You know, they're just doing, you know, we make that in our world especially, this is what's happening. People are standing in this way of saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's part of the whole, there is no absolutes, there aren't, there aren't any rights and wrongs. You know, whatever I think is right is right, and whatever I think is wrong is wrong. Makes life pretty difficult to live, though. How can you deal with somebody when you don't know what's right or wrong in their world, and you're trying to do what's right and wrong in your world, and you're disagreed on what's right and wrong? We're seeing that all over the place now. And the wicked are pushing hard against Christianity to say, you're going to accept my right to make my rights and wrongs, and you're not going to tell me what's right and wrong, period. And very important for us to understand, this is a spiritual battle. Very much a spiritual battle that we're going through right now when people are saying, you know, well, you've got to accept my lifestyle because I just don't, I don't think it's wrong, so therefore it's not. When they stand before God and try that line of argument, God's going to say, I created everything, I made the rules. They're my rules, you can't, you can't just alter the rules because you think you're that important. Basically what people are saying when they believe this is, I am God. Wasn't that Satan's argument right from the beginning? You, God has told you you can't eat it because he knows that in the day you eat of it, you shall be like him, knowing right from wrong. In essence, he was saying, you will be God. Wasn't that his problem too? He wanted to be like God. He wanted to put his seat next to God on the, on the mountain, and he wanted to be like God. Because he, he thought he knew everything. I don't know that he thought he knew everything. He wanted to be worshiped. He wanted to be worshiped like God. And the whole problem that he, that he does with human beings is, you can make your own rules. You can, you can be God. What are, what are most of the religions of this world's ultimate goal is to be a God. Mormonism's ultimate goal is for you to be good enough to be, well, for men anyway, <laughs> is to be good enough to be the God of your own planet and populate the planet with your seed. Right. That's their ultimate goal, right. to be God. They don't tell you <laughs> You're not told that right from the beginning, no. Jehovah's Witnesses, the ultimate goal is not necessarily to be God, but to be one of the 144,000 that are so close to God that you might as well be God. Then you get into Buddhism, where you keep coming, where you get so enlightened that you become Buddha. 
and that you have reached the epitome. You are part of the cosmic God. And Buddhism basically has a lot of pantheism in it, so that you you enlighten yourself until you become, you know, stepping into nirvana and become you know your ultimate one is to be part of the Buddha. In Hinduism, you keep regenerating, coming back, recoming back, recoming back, and somehow you're supposed to keep coming back and do better each time and go higher and higher until you become as close to God as you can become and become a God. The world is out there. Satan's temptation to people is to become God. There are no absolutes, so you are God. You get to make your own rules on what is right and what is wrong. That is how we're looking at it in the United States right now and most of Western Europe. There is no right or wrong, so you are God. You get to make your own rules, and your rules will be what gets you wherever you're supposed to be at the end. When you start looking at these really closely as to what they're doing, they're all about becoming a God. And we've got to be careful about that because Christianity can start in, in, in some places starting to fall into that mentality of, well, these, were, these are not really God's rules, so we're going, we're going to do that. Now, I would say they're probably not Christians either, okay, when they start doing that. But this is Satan's attack. You can be like God, knowing right from wrong and making your own decisions on what right and wrong are. And this is why I like to bring people in to can teach evolution and creationism and give us the answers. I like to I mean, if we could find somebody that I could get here affordably, I'd bring an apologetist like, apologist like Ravi Zacharias, and there would be no way we'd ever get him in our church, you know, but somebody of that kind of a statue who could come and teach these things. But by the same token, I can, I can teach because I can look in the material and understand what they're saying, and it's not that complicated. It really isn't. God is simple in many ways. The problem is so often that we don't want to accept the simplicity of what he says. Amen. You know, when you witness to somebody and you tell them, this is how you get to heaven. You admit you're a sinner. You admit you deserve punishment. You admit that Jesus paid for it and he died and rose from the dead. <laughs> Oftentimes you'll go, it can't be that simple. I go, it is that simple. Just release your pride to accept the simplicity of God's message. And we've got to be careful with that. Well, I love the book entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. <laughs> no. Because you really, I mean, you want to talk about having to have faith. Yeah. You pick up a rock and say, here's my great, 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 how many greats you want to put in, grandfather. But ultimately, it shocks, it shocks the evolutionists when you tell them, here's your, great -grand you know, your greatest grandfather is a rock. And they go, what do you mean? I'm going, well, doesn't it teach that the rains fell down on the rock and, and eventually made this pool of, of, of chemicals and produced life? Go, here is your greatest grandfather, a rock. You want to talk about faith? That takes a lot of faith. Mm -hmm. you know, and, cre and evolution violates one of the most important laws of science. And it, you've got to remember, when you say a law of science, it is proven that it is right. One of the laws of science is that there's no such thing as spontaneous generation of life. And yet the evolutionist wants you to believe that life spontaneously generated sometime back in the past. It violates a law of science, and yet they don't seem to recognize that they're violating their own law. And that is why evolution is called the theory of evolution and will never be the law of evolution. Because there's too many fallacies in it and too many problems with it. 
and the only group that believes it is biologists, almost all the, and, and astronomers. And they teach it as absolute And they teach fact. it as an absolute fact and not, they're teaching it, but you'll be, if you listen to them, none of them will ever call it the law of evolution because they know that once they hit that statement, that means something. You gotta prove it. And you better be able to prove that it is a law and that there's no contradiction anywhere with okay. it. So it will never be correctly called a law. Now, it wouldn't surprise me, especially after the church was gone, raptured, for them to call it a law, because there's nobody to argue with them. And, and you gotta really think about this. The church has had so much impact on this world. Church is a salt to the world that causes them to understand that there's problems with what they do. They may not like us, they may think that we're, you know, a little bit fanatical, and that's great, I don't care. <laughs> but the church is what has kept evil at bay for generations. And if you look into history, what's happening today is not a surprise. We are returning to what the world was like before Christianity. You know, before Christianity, the world was brutal. <coughs> It was brutal. If you were the weak, you got brutalized. If you were the strong, you did the brutalizing. Mm -hmm. You took what you wanted and, you, and nobody could tell you no. You didn't want this child. The Romans took their child, any child they didn't want to the near, nearby river, threw the child in the river. Or, just, or sacrificed it to a god or just outright cut its throat because you know, they didn't want the baby. Okay, We, we are kind in one sense. We do, we do versions before the baby's born. It's still the same process. They did a post-abortion, we do a pre-abortion, you know, birth abortion. But this is the world that existed then. You got sick or injured in battle, they didn't care. They'd throw you to the side. If you live, you live. If you don't, you deserve to die. That was their mindset. We're seeing that same mindset coming around in our world. You know, you're hurt, you know, big deal. Who cares? If you're strong enough, you'll live. If you're not, and it's going to get more and more in that, in that direction. They didn't look at it as theft when they took something. that you know, They just figured you were too weak to keep your stuff. We're just we're going to take it. This was the world before Christianity. Most of us think, you know, you know it's always been somewhat civilized, you know, and, and what we're seeing shocks us. Well, what we're seeing is return back to human nature that isn't being salted by Christianity. And part of it is, again, the church's fault. We've gotten out of activities. We're getting... We're not holding God's standards, and as the church as a whole, not, not everybody, but the church as a whole is starting to allow sin. We've got churches that condone homosexuality and say, well, gee, you know, this, is, this relationship looks like it might have been a homosexual relationship. They love to look at David and, and Jonathan and call their relationship a homosexual relationship. We'll see how much they, it says they loved each other. So, you know, obviously that meant that they had a homosexual relationship, you know, instead of just a deep friendship that says, I'm willing to give everything. And they, there's other places where they look at it and say, well, here's homosexuality here, here's, and because they're using their preconceived ideas and applying them to these, thing, these situations. Have you ever been in a situation where you said something innocent, you know, but somebody, everybody thinks, oh, wow, you, you, know, you really think that, you know, and they, and they put the worst possible spin on what you said yeah, and turn it into this awful thing, and, you know, and sometimes you have to even think about what you said, and I'm going, no, you know, how did you, how did you go there with that right. statement? It shows the filthiness of their minds 
when they can do that. And the world does that all the time because they are very filthy in their mindset. And they will attack and they will twist every, every innocent comment, every innocent activity. You know, there used to be a time when, when we probably all remember when you just put a bunch of kids in the same bed and it wasn't that big a deal, you know. Nowadays it's like, you know, you're teaching them homosexuality this way. You know, it's like, get, get real, you know. It's just, Teaching yeah. them to get in the bed and go to sleep. Yeah. But all the stuff that is out there where people will take their wicked minds and twist yes. what is said and make it into a sick, yes. perverted yes. activity. Right. But it is true that maybe it's not safe to do that kind of stuff anymore because of all the images they've been bombarded, been bombarded with right. on TV and, and, the, and yeah. the radio and their books and what they're being taught in school. And what you're showing in movies. Yeah, in movies, but even in school, they're being taught all this garbage right from the earliest age when they do not have the, the concept of being able to defend their minds, which is one of the reasons I'm adamantly opposed to the public school system for anybody who has a Christian child. To put our Christian children in this public school system is terrible because the public school system is, is socially engineering the next population to match what they want them to believe. And our poor kids are not, at high school they should, they should, if they've been well taught, be able to defend themselves and understand and logically work themselves through. But your poor kindergartner, first, second, third grader, they're not ready to, to be, and you don't, you know, and, we, and we set them up for it because we say respect adults, be, you know, be respectful on it, and yet, and then, you know, and I've had people, well, I'll just reteach them. I'm going, okay, so you're teaching them at the end of the day, which is fine. I, if you're going to put them in school, you better do this. Mm -hmm. But you're teaching them that your teacher that you're supposed to be respecting doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And you're, make, you're giving some very confusing messages to these little kids. Okay, I've got to respect this person, but they're not telling me the truth and they're not trustworthy. Why should I respect them? But you're telling me I have to respect them. It's a serious issue. And... This is why we need to get our Christian kids, especially, into Christian schools or homeschool them. And people go, well, you need two incomes. And I'm going, no, you don't need two incomes. You make sacrifices. You, know, you don't go out to dinner every night or, the, you know, or even once a week or something with, you know, when, you know, when you make these sacrifices. You may not have two cars. I, I've had many times when my kids were young, we did homeschooling with them for a long time. And did we have two cars? No. Do we go out to dinner? Probably never because we had four kids and, and just one income. You know, luckily, I was a restaurant manager. I could take them on in the inspection of my store and be able to have a, <laughs> let them have a meal. That was their meals. Their, their special night out was for me to go to work and work during, my, during our night out because I would do the inspection. You make sacrifices. You know, but even that is something that we don't really understand in this day and age. To make a sacrifice? Don't do what I want to do when I want to do. Put it off. But it is true that we're not, we're not honoring what God honors. And this is where it's very sad. You know, uh, worse yet is that God tells the fathers that they were to do the training of their kids. And the fathers tend to give it to the mothers. Mm -hmm. And as especially the boys get to be teenagers, they look at their dad who's not being a strong Christian father and they end up walking away because, hey, dad doesn't think it's important. Obviously, it's not important. I've been in churches where I've been telling them we need men teaching kids Sunday school because the boys especially need to see that men serve God 
and think he's important. In the average church, the earliest of child will see an, a man serving God other than the pastor standing up on the platform will be when they get to high school, maybe. Maybe in high school. And that is sad. And so this is the key. Are we going to follow God? Are we going to say, you are true, God. You are right. And the temptation is so simple to say, well, I'm going to do things my way. And our way very, very, very rarely works correctly. Our way usually leads us into bad decisions, usually leads us into sin, usually leads us into any kind of complications. And this goes back to what we said at the very beginning. You know, we do what logically makes sense to us in, a, in an issue which violates God's word. And then later on, we really regret the decision. We may have avoided what we thought was our big problem. And then we line ourselves up with all kinds of problems down the road, sometimes serious problems down the road. And so it's important. His word is true. We need to live in his word and honor his word. Because anytime we start thinking we know better, and it's easy to do, believe me, I understand, it's easy to, to come to the conclusion that I know better somehow, and step outside of what he says, and end up paying the price. And we've all done it in some point in our life where we come to a, a, a little bit of a, a why in the road, and it's follow God, make my own decision. You know, and if we're smart, normally we follow God and we say, okay, but there is always that time when we've made the wrong decision. Okay, and we have heard our testimony by some decision that we did where God says, don't do this, and yet we do it. Maybe it wasn't a bad, bad decision, but the people look at us and saying, wow, you know, you're, you're living a, you know, I didn't know Christians did that. <laughs> You know, is that how Christians live? And you're going, well, yeah, yeah. totally tears apart your testimony. You know, you're going, you know you're not supposed to be doing it. Maybe it's not destroying your life, but you know that it, you know, people are looking at you and saying, oh, you guys are living together? Didn't God say you're supposed to be married? Uh, well. And this is a sinner talking to you, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's a sinner. It's a lost person. It's not even a Christian talking to you like this. You know, the Christians may not even say it, but they're looking at you also saying, how could you live that way? We're going to go ahead and end here. We've got two verses done in a very short chapter that I thought we were going to get through. I figured for sure we'd get through this and go get into the next one. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We, we thank you that you have a truth, you have a right. And Lord, we ask that you help us to always stick with what is right and what is true, that you will be there and help us to make the right decisions to follow you, even when we don't see how being obedient to you can be the answer. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.